0: Welcome to another episode of Adding Context, a podcast of compelling conversations centered on advancing and enhancing the human experience. I am your host, Michael Bollins. Welcome back to a, another episode of Adding Context. It has been quite a while since we've recorded. Today's episode is going to be a little interesting. It's, uh, we're speaking to two people who have been in education for quite a long time. I have had a relationship with them. I know them very well. So just to get things going, uh, Jean, go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us about yourself.
1: I'm Jean Dvorak. I taught in the... Vocational school system in Middlesex County at East Brunswick Votech. I was an English teacher there for 38 years and I retired in, I think it was 2009. And I am currently acting as a substitute teacher. I did a long term English substitution at the um, Edison, well, they're now called the Magnet Schools. It's the Edison Academy, which is one of the Magnet Schools, which were the former, is the name of the former Votech schools. And I'm substituting there. So I get to Substitute in all the classrooms with the STEM kids. And uh, I have had some pretty strong opinions about education all my life. Uh, Had a good friend who I helped her with her go for her doctorate in education. We've had many discussions about the problems in education and the concerns that we have. I strongly believe that education needs to expand to welcome. All different sorts of students, and I think that a lot of the standardization that's going on right now limits limits what kids are expected to learn and how kids learn. So that's basically it. I've been a South Brunswick resident all my life, so I'm still here.
0: And the other person is uh, Vivian.
1: Hi, I'm
2: Vivian Stavo, and I work in South Brunswick school districts, though I don't live in South Brunswick. I have been teaching in South Brunswick for 31 years. I'm in my 31st year right now. I taught every grade, kindergarten to eighth grade. When I graduated college, I had a a very strong reading focus, working with Title I reading, and somewhere along the way, met some very influential mathematical people who shifted me over to math, and I've been teaching math for, gosh, it's got to be 15. Teen years now, currently with instructional support students. So, those are struggling learners who are not special ed, they're general education students, but they're struggling to master the math skills up till now. This year, I'm working with sixth grade students.
0: Thank you guys for a little bit of background from you guys. I have substituted, I only got my substitution, substitute teaching cert so I could uh, coach in schools, but I was able to kind of be in the classroom a little bit here and there. And from my experience in that, dealing with my two boys. I, I've developed some of my own thoughts on things, but I wanted to get people who've, you know, that's, that's their careers. That's what they know. Um, and that's what you're dedicated to, to get their little insight on things. So I guess the first question is, is and it's kind of probably a, a really dumb question, but has things changed in a positive direction or a negative direction since you guys started
1: both. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Nothing's nothing black and white, right? right? So we've had some great progress. And then we've also shifted towards a focus that like uh, Jean was hinting at, you know, it's not one size fits all. And, and our schools tend to be focusing more towards and catering more towards those that are college bound. And I would say that this is a definite factor right now.
1: And and I would have to Generally, generally agree with that. Uh, Having taught in the vocational school system as long as I did, I saw that the kids have many different abilities. And with all the standardized testing that we have, all the standardized testing is very academically focused. And the attitudes are very much that kids are supposed to go on to college and go on to higher education. There are so many other educational opportunities out there that are, are being ignored because of that. I'm not opposed to the idea of STEM education. I mean, I'm subbing in the Edison Academy. What the kids do there is fantastic. Those fields are wonderful, but there's more to the world than just STEM and technology. And and people have different abilities. And if we don't cater to those different, different abilities, there are going to be a lot of people left behind. And I think that's a really sad circumstance. So that is a definite negative. From the positive side, I think education has gained a little bit of respect that it didn't have maybe when I started. I mean, people might say that, oh, well, you know, you're a teacher, you're okay. But I think that that people are beginning to realize that education is far more valuable than it, than it was years ago for people to develop. Maybe to some detriment because, again, they start to push for college and push for higher education. But I think that's a positive. On the other hand, teachers don't get paid enough, and I don't even want to get into that one. So, okay.
0: <laughs> it's funny that you guys mentioned that—that's the narrative that they you know—everything is geared towards getting kids to go to college. Because I mean, I've been out of high school for almost thirty years now, and that was always the push: was you know, if you don't go to college, you, you won't be able to succeed in anything. I took the avenue of going to VOTech vote and learning a trade, which I cherish in the fact that it's always given me something that I could fall back on if I needed and I've always kind of felt that pushing every student to go to college is not the right course for the reasons that you guys have mentioned everybody has their own skill sets and you know catering to the student and, and what their strengths are should be the goals of education <laughs> you know if you have a kid that's not the greatest in math like myself greatest educationally you know uh Traditional education classes, but I was good with my hands. I, I, if you look at my electives like you know wood shop and electronics and things like that, I had good grades when it came to math and English and science. And I was, I was okay, we'll say. But like you pointed out, there there's students who they might not have the capabilities to succeed well, especially when you're more of self-taught as you get to have to kind of be a little more independent. In your educational studies in college, um, because you don't have your teachers that are on you. They just say, here's your work, and if you have questions, come back to me. What do you see from your experiences that could make things better for students? And I understand that you might not have as much say in this because it's all guided by higher ups, we'll say, but what kind of things would you see would make a, a significant impact in improving education?
2: Well, I, I grabbed my paper and pencil because while you were talking, you know, a lot of thoughts go through my head. Um, and, I th- and I think what's going to happen is there's going to be fallout for society as a whole, but with this college stuff. So the, the first thought that I had was that college, if you don't know your path, you know, if you're someone who's struggling and you don't know what you want to do, college is a giant waste of money. And right now the debt people carry from college is unconscionable. You know, in, in a place like this where college is so expensive, Going just because people say you should or you think you should is, is just tragic. At the same time, what's happening now, and I don't know if either of you have tried to call a plumber or an electrician, but very often you're lucky to even get a call back from one when you call eight of them. And it's because they can pick and choose what jobs they want. And if your job's not big enough, you're not going to find anyone to come to your house and take care of something that you don't have the skill to do. And we're already seeing the fallout from pushing kids towards college and not towards the trades and the debt that kids have, which you're hearing on the news constantly about, you know, student debt was canceled. Now it's not. Now it's the the payments are back on again. And now we're taking a whole nother generation doing the same thing to them. It's kind of like, you know, beating yourself over the head. You just don't stop. Right. So I, I think that that more than. Then education is going to come to a head with this, where society is going to start seeing these holes and saying, "Wait a minute, something's wrong." That's they never listen to the teachers. <laughs> they'll, they'll listen when the people who control it, which is uh, you know the, the voting public, because you vote in your board of ed members, and, and you're going to start voting in people who are going to do things that are going to change education. That's that's where change comes from in schools and, and college. From the perspective of someone who has one that just graduated and one who's in a sophomore year. College has sort of become an extension of high school where you said, oh, you know, college three years ago when you went was more self-learning, right? It's not. The professors, you should talk to some professors, (laughs) the things they have to do to have kids be successful because they want kids to be successful. Reminding them about projects and all these things, they're doing it. Um, You wouldn't think college would be doing those things. And and they're doing it because there's kids there who are just not necessarily academics. They're there because they think they're supposed to be there. And couple that with kids who are dropping out of college or taking leaves from college because either they can't keep up with the academics or more often right now, a little COVID fallout, um, the social is is getting them right now. But you have a lot of kids cycling in and out of college. So I I think it's coming to a head. I think it's going to be soon. And, And I hope that that spurs the changes that we need to see to get ourselves back to more of a balance where you have, you know, the trades and the academics and not for nothing, but. If your child goes the route of trade versus college, they can easily be pulling six figures when your academic student gets out of college and has to be paying back all the money they owed, and they can barely get ahead and can barely buy a house. So uh, I see the trades as a way, if you're money motivated, it's probably better than going to college at all. And I forget what you asked. because <laughs> I, <really laughs> right right, I, was, I was
0: wondering what what things that you guys might feel could be done to improve Things uh, at the current state. I know that's a very open, loosely worded question, but I kind of want to give you guys a, the free range to. I, th- well, I think. You...
1: Oh, I'm sorry, I'm going.
2: Go... I'm <laughs> the instructional support teacher in my building. I am the only math instructional support teacher funded by the district. We have two others that are funded from a grant that that happened a couple of years ago for 900 students. There prior to that grant was just me, and similarly prior to that grant there was one instructional support reading, writing teacher. And the two of us, you know, have been at it for quite some time. We used to be supported by the district to take students who were interested to Votek, to go visit. And we would spend half a day there. Um, they would get to see uh, the different careers, talk to them. Students would take them around on tours. They could see everything there was to offer. They would leave with a cookie baked by the bakery kids, <laughs> which was great at the East Brunswick campus. And we come back and we talk about it. And we would talk about what their goals were as students who are struggling academically, it's a very realistic thing to say, well, you know, eighth grade, you can make a choice. You don't have to go to high school. You don't have to pick a college path. The resistance was really the parents, because when those parents were in school, Votech with Dean is where kids who got, um, who were failures went, kids who got expelled went, the troublemakers went there. And it, not at all, it's not that anymore at all. It is a very real, very good path for students to take. And so we tried that. And then We did not get the funding from the district anymore to take the bus, to take the kids. However, the STEM programs, and and Jean can talk to this, started taking off like crazy, being super competitive and parents pushing their kids to apply to the Votex STEMs and the application process. And I'm going to stop there and let Jean pick up here because she knows way more about this than I do.
1: All right, well, I taught at the East Brunswick Vocational School for 38 years, and now it's no longer called the East Brunswick Vocational School. The school system has changed its name to the Magnet Schools with the concept of changing the whole image, the whole personality, the whole attitude about the schools. And I don't know if you've seen, but there have been a number of advertisements from the Middlesex County system that have been on television lately because they're trying to, to create a new image. And so what's happened is that the vocational schools have become the magnet schools and they've broken into academies. There's a, and people don't even know this. There's a, there's a medical academy in Woodbridge. There's the engineering academy in Edison. There's an arts academy in East Brunswick. And then in both East Brunswick, oh, excuse me, in East Brunswick, Piscataway and Perth Amboy, you have the more, more usual trades and they're all available to the kids in the township and in the County for basically for free. There's no tuition. There, It doesn't cost any more to go to that school. But the problem is, is that each time a student leaves the district, if a student leaves South Brunswick, some of that money gets funneled into the vocational schools. And so what happened, particularly during the I would say probably the 80s, late 80s and into the 90s, some of these tours stopped because, for instance, South Brunswick didn't want its students going to the VOTEC because they were going to lose money. Because each time a student left, that tuition money was going to go to the VOTECs instead. It was the same taxpayer money. It was just being put in a different school district. But the regular school districts didn't like it. So kids stopped going. And there was a period of time, when I first started teaching in the East Brunswick School, I think there was a waiting list of about seven or 800 kids who wanted to get into that school. As time went on and into the 90s, that waiting list dropped down to really, really low numbers because these other districts were not sending their kids there anymore. They were not taking kids on tours, not even telling the kids about it. Parents didn't even know the schools existed. So, what's happened now is that the vocational system, by changing its name to the Magnet School and starting this whole new uh, publicity program, is changing that image. And I told Vivian earlier, I think we had, I, it was well over 600 students applying to the Edison Academy, and they had to write essays, and I read 600-some essays and helped grade those essays for those kids for us for 44 seats that were available in the school. And this is happening now in the East Brunswick campus with the Arts Academy and it happens at the Woodbridge campus with the with Science Academy. And again when when the kids go into the other programs there there's a waiting list again. They can't just get in anymore. So there is a turnaround, but it's it's a big publicity problem. People I still talk to people, and they don't even know in Middlesex County that these schools exist and these options exist. And so these kids are being steered into colleges. And as Vivian said, you know, high tuitions, high, you know, all kinds of other issues that are happening once they go to college and they don't succeed because they're not college-type kids. And we've been stressing now over the past Oh, good grief. I'm trying to think how long it's been now. I'm getting old here. (laughs) (laughs) It's been, you know, the last 20 or 30 years, we've we've had these standardized tests that that have come out, that every kid has to take the standardized test, and the standardized tests have been getting more and more and more academic, and if a kid fails on the standardized test, might never get a diploma from the high school because they failed the standardized test, and the standardized test is geared toward academics rather than the skills that the kids actually have. it affects the funding of the school districts as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, te- and teachers' jobs, have they started any of that nonsense yet or not? The the SGOs,
2: you know, that we were talking about are the only way that that would affect the teachers' jobs because your SGO, is, uh, well, there's there's the tested content areas and then there are the non-tested areas. So the tested areas, yeah, it does affect teachers.
1: Yeah, see.
2: But only in the tested areas. Um, but when, one thing that came up while you were talking, Jean, in my head was the economically disadvantaged student, how how yes. unfair this competitive system is for the economically disadvantaged who could be equally or even more deserving than some of these other kids. But those parents are hiring tutors and they're hiring consultants and for, for high school to get kids into a, a Votex STEM high school. And it, it is mind-blowingly crazy. And then you have students who are very, very deserving but economically disadvantaged. And so they don't have parents who can have the means or their parents don't understand that that's the process that's happening right now and so those kids are shut out of these quality programs and the other way that funding is is taken from public schools would be through charter schools and we haven't heard about them That's that oh yeah. you know hasn't bubbled up since before covid i hate using that marker but it's true charter schools suck money out of school districts like crazy and they don't have to actually work. <laughs> they, they just put a plan in, anybody can start a charter school, get people to sign up for it. And that just siphons money off of a local district. Like you have absolutely no idea um, that has affected greatly the areas around, you know, in this part of New Jersey. And I know that there's been some pushback and some coalitions of school districts to try to counter some of the ones that have come up most recently. But again, this is all pre-COVID. So I don't know what's happening right now.
1: And, I, and as I understand it, too, the charter schools are not held to the same standards as the not at all. and public schools. Not at all. So the public schools are being held to certain standards and obligations by the government and by the en- local entities, and the charter schools are not.
0: That's kind of what I've I've heard. It's almost like a free for all. Like like Viv said, there's there's no accountability. There's no benchmarks that they have to achieve. There's there's just uh, it's almost like the old wild west of just go do what you want and.
2: They fill out an application, you know, the one that I can remember most recently, I think it was a, a Chinese language charter school. Again, oh, I like Pre-COVID, it was going to affect West Windsor, Plainsboro and South Brunswick right. and somewhere else. Um, I don't even know what happened to it, honestly. I don't know if it actually made it or if they shot it down. I have no idea. I,
0: I do know from my experience that the the Mercer County vocational schools, uh, very in a very different way from the way they... Middlesex is set up. Middlesex is set up as a student goes there as just a, they do their whole day there. Mercer County, they're only going there for half a day um, to learn specifically that trade, but they, they sit at their home school. So I, I imagine that that has effects on how funding is done and, and maybe even the, the, the drive, because I know that Mercer County does do a lot to maintain what their schools and the schools do enough to push out you know, to at least get the kids to understand that that's an option at that Do you have a, a preference from your experience, Gene, as to which setup might be a little more advantageous for students, one it's a, f- a full day where they go for their math, English, and, and their trade, or one where they have a home high school and go to the VOTEX strictly for that trade?
1: Well, probably from the state's perspective, the shared time is what you're talking about would be, more advantageous as far as testing and whatnot goes but as far as I'm concerned having a a a full program for the kids at a vocational school is much better because you gear the academics to what the particular trades are to some degree when I started there that was far more true in other words my English classes were help were geared towards whatever particular trade the kids were doing and had to do with a lot of life skills that the kids needed to learn as time has gone on and the standardized testing has come into play and the vocational schools were also rolled into the standardized testing, that changed a little bit and the academic classes became more academic. But still, there was a lot of cooperation between the trade teachers, the shop teachers, and the academic teachers to help these kids along, which you don't get when you do shared time. So a kid might be not doing that particularly well in his regular home high school, in his classroom, and nobody ever gets to see what he's been able to do in the vocational school, in his home high school, and he's not as respected and not as 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 helped by the teachers and by the staff. I, I said this earlier, and I don't know if I said this now, but I mean, I don't know, have a number of times that I would have a kid who was really struggling in my English class. No matter what I was doing, that kid was having problems. Might not have been a good writer, might not have been a good reader. You know, I could try to get them to cooperate. I would go down to that kid's shop and see what that kid was doing in the shop. And my whole perspective, my whole attitude about that kid changed. Because I saw some incredible things that they were doing down in shop. And I saw them for where their real talents were. So maybe they weren't the best readers. Maybe they weren't the best writers. But now I saw what they could do. They saw me come down there. They saw me appreciate what they did in the shop class, and when they came back to my classroom, they had a great deal more respect for me and started to listen to me more. And that doesn't exist when you have shared time because they're two different entities. And unless the regular academic high school has some kind of really close contact with the vocational school, you just can't have that type of cooperation and understanding going on. That makes a
2: lot of sense. I know the way that that you cater... The language courses, English and reading and writing in VOTech is very similar to how college does it. In college, you know, when you have freshman writing, every first year has to take a writing class, but there's a section for engineers. There's a section for students in art and design. There's a section for students who are in liberal arts and those sections are different and the requirements are different. So if college is taking into account the way you know, individuals are and where their sub-skills are. I don't understand why our high schools can't. Again, you're talking if you're on grade level, there's one name for it. The next track up is called college. Um, I can't think of the right word for it right now because I am well, teaching. college. College. college prep it's called college, college, prep. college prep, and then right. if you're good at that you get the the honors level and then above that would be your ap, AP. Level. right and That's everything right. is on this funnel towards college but then you go to college and it's like hey you can be in writing for art and design and that looks nothing like liberal arts writing or writing for engineers so i don't understand this disconnect high schools have
0: um it was mentioned before that some of the classes that were taught years ago were Catered more towards life skills. I remember that kind of being like the home economics class, where you you learn what it is to be able to run your house, so to speak, with you know simple cooking, cleaning, and how to wash your clothes, and just things that, as you put it, life skills that you need to live by yourself. It doesn't seem that those types of classes exist anymore, and it also seems that civics seems to have disappeared and. Obviously, they're two very different things, but I kind of see them coming together, given how politics has played into such a, a key role into education, whether it's for trying to figure out if push for standardized testing, pushing for national education standards, pushing for, you know, where you guys are getting your funding and stuff. What is your, your thoughts on bringing back maybe some of those older life school or, or life skills classes and things like that?
2: Well, let me speak to that. Um, So for middle school, one year after I got to the middle school in South Brunswick, uh, there was a funding decision that had to be made by districts, and they had to make a choice. Either they were going one route, which I'll let you guess what that was, or they would stay the course. So let's call Route A the way South Brunswick chose it. One year after I got to the middle school, all those programs were shut down. We had all of that. We had the home ec and digital printing. Um, They had, oh my gosh, I can't remember because they're not there anymore, all the things the kids did would shop something else. They had all these courses for kids, and they would cycle through them just like you remember doing. Now, other districts like West Windsor Plainsboro chose Path B kept all those programs. My kids went through those programs. All three years they did really fun projects. They um, modified them a little since you were there, Mike, because, you know, you're old now. So they added in stuff like design and engineering type things and really cool design challenges, but they still kept the wood shop and the home ec. Both my boys had to cook meals and sew buttons and do all that in middle school. So that was a funding choice between districts uh, um, that the state laid out and districts made their decisions. that was middle school. High school wise, again, I I can speak for two things. South Brunswick where I work, when the print shop uh, teacher retired, so did the program. Last year, the auto shop teacher retired. The auto shop is now a um, warehouse for the district. That program has uh, sunsetted. So with those teachers leaving, we don't have those opportunities for our kids anymore that we did before. West Windsor-Plainsboro, I can speak to because my kids were there. They could continue um, design and engineering courses, wood shop courses, all the way through. My, my older chose some different types of classes and then went to Notre Dame. My younger stayed West Windsor the whole way through, and every year had one or two of those type courses in his schedule. So they, they are or were there, but they are definitely on the decline. Um, I did want you to de- define civics, though. Because things change.
0: <laughs> I'll use the, the definition of civics of fundamental understanding of government and social contracts that seem to have disappeared. Especially people's understanding of, of how government is supposed to function.
2: So there's a lot of courses in high school. There's not just one civics course, but um, you know, New Jersey State Curriculum has many courses geared towards understanding government. I just think instead of it being called civics, you have um, different classes to pick from and a a more depth to the topic. And when you're saying social contracts like um, critical thinking type things, this year New Jersey implemented new curriculum. Again, I don't teach high school, um, but there is new curriculum in place that is supposed to help children understand um, more about informational sourcing and social media and things along that nature. So I think just in terms of curriculum, New Jersey actually has a great curriculum. They they have a great machine for pumping out curriculum and staying current on trend with the skills kids need for today's society. I really do feel like we do a good job of that for our kids. Uh, I think that too often inexperienced teachers and inexperienced districts rely on textbooks to deliver curriculum rather than going to the standards themselves and delivering the standards. And those are two different things. And I found even among some colleagues of my own, a lack of understanding of the difference between the two. Well, if this textbook is written for these standards, then I can just follow the textbook. But not every lesson in the textbook actually applies to the standards. So I think that just sort of in in teacher education and also every board of education member should be aware of, what the standards are that the state has set out and and what those standards should look like in the classroom and um, finding the appropriate way to deliver those standards. And that's really important.
0: Any thoughts on that, Jean?
1: Well, I was just thinking at the, I know at the uh, Edison Academy right now, the kids have to take a financial literacy course and it's, Unfortunately, it's sort of pushed into the engineering curriculum right now because there there isn't a lot of room in the schedule to put a lot of these courses in, and I think that's happened in a lot of schools too. Because as the standards keep increasing from the state, it's when are you going to teach this or teach that? As far as civics go, that's been again a part of a part of the uh, Edison Academy's uh, curriculum for as long as I've been there. I mean, uh, and. The nice thing is is that the teachers cooperate with each other so that a history teacher and an English teacher and the media center specialists are all working together in order to teach the kids some of these life skills. Vivian was talking about the informational skills, uh, learning how to use informational literacy, how to uh, search the Internet, how to be a safe surfer, how to... Uh, you know, use resources correctly, how to look up information, how to do research and and learn all of these things on your own. And that's been a part of the curriculum because at that particular school and actually it was true when I was in when I was in East Brunswick, we always tried to get the kids to learn how to think, you know think outside the box or think creatively, you know, get a problem and and become a problem solver. And those are important skills that, that people forget when, as Vivian said, they use the textbook. I hate to say it, but when I left the building, when I retired, I had about four or five boxes of brand new textbooks in my back uh, storage room that I never opened. I never used them because they were you know, standardized texts and you couldn't be creative. You couldn't. Find ways to get to the kids, to get them interested, to get them doing things if you just pulled out that book and started on page one and just kept going. So, you know, it's it's a complicated process. Education is a complicated process, and, and we keep wanting to narrow it down to numbers because the numbers are convenient. Uh, this has been one of my arguments against the standardized testing because what the standardized test does is provide numbers. And the numbers are only valuable to the politicians and the people who know how to look at numbers. They don't know what the numbers mean. They don't know what the numbers reflect. They don't know what the numbers say. But, gee, that's easy. You know, this, this student failed. This student passed. This student is a good student. This student is a bad student. This school is okay because the right number of kids passed the test. This school isn't a good school because these kids didn't pass the test. And it's not numbers. It's people. And when we forget that, that's when education starts to fail.
0: When I look at like the the makeups of the Board of Education, whether we talk about the local level or the the state level, I mean these are effectively the people that are agreeing upon what should and shouldn't be taught, what money should be allocated to what product uh, programs and things like that. Um, I remember hearing a little while back, probably about ten or so years ago, there was a big push to almost get rid of the arts and keep everything strictly academic, which I fought tooth and nail against because from my perspective, the arts, whether we talk about music or painting or the all-encompassing arts, it allows the kids to be creative and that creativity is kind of what spurns their ability to process other aspects of things. In your ideal world, how and who would be the group of people that you would like to see making these decisions? Because right now, um, looking at the the State Board of Education, the the president is from business and the vice president of the State Board is in real estate. And neither one of them have a real educational background.
1: Teachers. Teachers. You You need teachers. You need teachers who have been in the classroom. Or else take these people. I keep saying, okay, throw them into a classroom for a couple of months. You know, don't give them any support don't give them any support don't have a principal standing over them to make sure that the kids are disciplined or that the materials are available throw them into a classroom let them discover what goes on when you start to interact with these kids to learn because they don't understand they're looking that's what i said they look at numbers they look at numbers test scores test scores are great because they're numbers they 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 reduce everybody to a number and it's so easy to look at that and evaluate a school based on that Um, I I said to Vivian earlier, there was a a push for a while to use portfolios or some other ways of evaluating whether kids were successful or not in school. But it was too much trouble because you needed people who were going to sit there and read papers and look at things that the kids had created like art projects and things like that 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 the kids had done. And it was just too cumbersome. When you, meanwhile, if you have a standardized test that has you know, fill in the blank and then shoot it through a Scantron machine, you can get the thing graded, you know, in in 15 minutes and and you're done. Then you've got all your numbers. These people, that's the way they look at the world, through the numbers rather than through the people. And that's the problem that I see. So I think we need to get educators back into education.
2: I think there needs to be a balance. um, Because I I certainly think that there are things that members – outside of education can bring to education. And so I would value the skills in terms of of different different mindset, different managerial, different funding formulas like there are there's definitely a place in the board of education for people from the business world and from other areas to contribute, but educators are the stakeholders. Educators are the ones who have devoted their lives to bettering our society by, by educating our young people. And so those are the people who have the skills for that. So I think a balance or some kind of blend needs to happen because if you do leave it up to the educators, <laughs> um, funding would definitely be an issue because we <laughs> want to give kids everything. Right, you're you're not a teacher to make money. You're a teacher because you want to help. You want to give these kids everything. Like I would be giving away college education to kids who can't afford it. I, you know, I would be doing all kinds of crazy things. So I would need grounding. Um, <laughs> people who understand how to get to the money. And, and so I would say we have to include people from various walks of life. But by removing the people who've devoted their lives to the profession. You're definitely, sh- uh, you know, short-sighted. Now, now, you have to understand that local boards of education can't pick and choose what standards they deliver. We're talking the state level, um, not local board level of who should be on it. But I, I do also think that on the local board level, the people who run for office should probably be people who have kids in the schools. <laughs> not had kids in the schools 20 years ago, but have kids in the schools. and I, And I think that's important because they are directly affected by their decisions, where the other people are like, well, my kid's through that. I, I, you know, we were there. Yeah, it was fine when my kid was there, but now we're going to do this. And and that's something that's not in place right now that I think would be beneficial for communities. They would have a better understanding.
0: Both of you guys had mentioned a, a couple things, and I have like 10 questions that popped out of that last five minutes. There seems to be a number of people, and we spoke briefly about critical thinking and the ability to that information, the logical fallacies that are out there that people just seem to fall right into. Over the last four to six, maybe eight years, there's been a lot of things that people believe are being taught in schools that there or incidents that are occurring in schools, that way schools are catering to students individually that are just so ridiculous and preposterous but because a politician is saying that it's happening, it's happening. How can we get people to understand exactly what is going on in schools? Like there's the whole big conversation of, you know, critical race theory being taught in high in, in high schools and, and middle schools and the various aspects of sexual education being taught at such young grades and things like that. How can we as a population, dispel, to quite put it honestly, the bullshit that's out there so people really understand what's being taught?
2: I would say, like, first of all, critical race theory is not something you teach. Okay, critical race theory is a theory. um, It's grounded in law and is not a class. And, And the lack of understanding on what critical race theory means is sort of the root of why people are falling into this sort of trap, I would say. To get out of that, I would highly recommend people to go look at their school's standards. (laughs) I feel like I'm repeating myself, but here's the thing. This is what schools are teaching your child. It's what's written in the state. You know, you could go there right now, NJSLS. You can Google it, put a grade level next to it, and you will see every standard that your child is being taught that year. And while teachers and districts can use materials that they desire to deliver those standards, those standards are the core of what's being taught. And so step one would be figure that out, right? Go, go online, look it up, and see what is in your child's curriculum. And then if you're more interested about it, you can ask the school, the teacher, uh, what materials they're using to support that. So if there is an, a, an item of interest there that, that you want to know, pick the standard, name the standard, and ask the school, what materials are you using to meet this standard, standards generally like for math, for example, have numbers on them. So if you ask me, what am I doing for number sense standard 1.3.a.1, <laughs> I literally can find that for you and tell you, oh, that's easy. We're going to roll some dice and, and play this game. And then we're going to talk about this. And I can tell you exactly how I'm going to meet that standard. And every teacher should be able to do that. So that, that would, I think, alleviate a lot of fears about how something is being taught to students. And I think that kind of covers both of the items that you were sort of dancing around there. Um, And it's grade level appropriate, right? And so we're not going to do things in second grade that we would do in 10th grade. We're not going to put the same materials in front of a seven-year-old that we would in front of a 16-year-old, you know, teachers for the most part are reasonable and and a lot of us have our own kids and we get it. So I would ask. And and I think that once you know what's happening, you'll be um, less likely to believe the social media things that we are teaching our children to not believe and to find the truth behind.
1: I think, that's, I think it's a great idea, but my problem is that I think a lot of the people who believe a lot of these fallacies are not the kind of people who are going to go out and do that research. So my, my only solution is we're fighting a big publicity juggernaut that's out there. Uh, the voices that support the fallacies are too big and too loud. And the voices that know the truth are too soft and too quiet. And if you wanted to take a bunch of money and put it into something, i just start a gigantic publicity campaign with a bunch of radical uh, educators who know what's going on, who are going to start telling the truth, you know, in the... um, the fashion of a certain politician who's really good at spreading stories to people. Um, we need to spread the stories. They're not getting out there. As I said, that was one of the things that the that the magnet schools have started to some degree to support vocational education. But it needs to be done on a larger scale to tell people really what goes on in the classrooms. NJEA puts out ads, and they're all quiet, and they're all polite, and they're all loving, and they're you know very pretty and very wonderful. But that's not what the other side does. We have to become like the other side. We have to become a little bit more militant about it. I mean, I hate to say it, but I just don't see any other perspective. It's got to be fight fire with a bit of fire rather than, you know, just being reasonable all the time. And, and you know, I, I get rabble roused about it sometimes because I keep saying, why don't you start screaming the truth instead of, you know, whispering it? And I think that's another option. So,
0: The thing that I, the narrative that I find kind of comical and and you kind of touched on it with, you know, truth. It it, it seems to be that there's two types of truth. There's objective, demonstrable uh, truth that rational people follow and and accept as, as truth. And then there's this fictional truth. And when you try to engage with some of these people and point out the flaws in their fictional truth because that's the benefit of objective truth is it's it's pretty objective. <laughs> you, they just get angry and they start kind of hitting the check boxes for every logical fallacy that exists to try and stick in their point how do you think we can get people to not be so married to these horrific ideologies and these positions of complete utter ignorance if it's even possible
1: i i i don't know sometimes i get very disheartened about that i mean i say to myself how can you possibly believe this when i see what some of these people believe and so again the only thing that i can think of is to keep hitting on reality over and over and over again and not being so quiet about it I mean you know teachers tend to be a little bit passive about things which is part of their nature because you have to be sort of passive you can't be too passionate with you be passionate with the kids but you can't be too passionate so you learn to you know kind of hold back a little bit and be reasonable and be logical I mean, maybe it's maybe the time has come where where in order to, to fight all of this, the, there has to be a rationality a little bit on both sides, you know, about as, as far as actions go, not on what you say, but on your actions, you know, get a little, get dramatic, you know. I, I always admire the Lincoln Project advertisements because they do get overly, you know, they get really dramatic. And I mean, they they know how to approach things. We need more of that. We need more of the truth coming out in that sort of a way. Um, I don't know if you're going to change some people's minds because some people are just so positively set in their in their ways and in their beliefs. The critical race theory is a perfect example of that. You know, this belief that 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 something horrible is going on, or all the books that are being banned, I mean, for whatever the ridiculous reasons they're being banned, and people believe it, well, the other side has got to speak up and say, no, this is wrong, this is wrong, over and over and over and over and over again, you know, indoctrination in the other direction is the only solution that I can think of, because I don't know what else to do to change some of these minds.
2: I, I think you can't. Um, unfortunately, like, you know, you say, well, we want to change your mind. You you can't. Oh, yes. And I think that, that that's definitely an issue. The lovely thing for those of us who are still in a classroom is that, you know, you can bring the logic and the truth to the kids and you can challenge the kids when they're really young, they're really just expressing their parents' beliefs. But as they start to grow through middle school and high school, they start developing their own beliefs. And so the greatest you know, effect to change that we can have is through the kids that are in front of us. And, and I think that we're laying the groundwork of that with this new curriculum that is asking kids to define the truth, to, to, to determine what is true. And it's not just because you can find it in multiple places on the Internet. And, and I think raising the next generation of kids to do that is going to be the only way to shift that thinking. There's no way you're going to change the minds of the people who are on fire. It's the, the best way I can describe these people. And I think it almost is self-defeatist and a waste of energy to try to do so. Well, I don't disagree that, that our side needs to be louder. <laughs> we definitely <laughs> do, and I, I, I regret that our union is not louder about it. I do also understand that, that the best place that we have to change this is the minds in front of us.
0: I, I, I try to understand how we've even gotten to this point of such incredible, immovable ignorance. It in, in, in in seems to be a significant chunk of the population, which is disheartening and, and a little scary. But at the same time, I see these little sparks are all over the place that people are understanding or at least starting to see that it's not as gloom and doom as as it might appear to be to some. To kind of shift gears a little bit, we mentioned that students are kind of seen as numbers nowadays. With all the – some of the recent things that have gone on around about um, college missions and things like that, do you see a way that you could kind of make it as – Fair, so to speak, as, as possible. You know, is that a, an instance where students being strictly numbers would be a beneficial area? You know, if you have a, a student that's literally based just off of their Social Security number that has all their academics attached to it, has nothing about their gender, their race, their this, or that. It's just strictly their their educational life in a form of a number. Do you think that would be a, a I guess, a, a fair, more fair way to, to weigh prospective students into colleges and universities? For
2: college specifically, absolutely not. A college wants a diverse population. A college wants um, you to be confronted with different cultures, different thinking. Um, that's the brain growth that happens during those years. And, you know, if you want to spit out and say, all right, well, we're going to accept kids from this range to this range with these accomplishments, you basically are just creating this homogenous society where they're not going to challenge any beliefs at all. They're not going to grow. They're going to be actually stunted and it would be a horrible thing. So absolutely not. I think, you know, portfolio based decisions are, are probably the best way. And I know that Jean, you know, hinted on how difficult that is to do. But essentially, that's what some colleges are going towards, because since they can't do affirmative action anymore and they want to maintain the diversity, they're finding other ways to achieve that diversity because that is essential for the growth at that age.
1: And I I tutored a student who was applying to colleges last year and uh, a lot of the medical schools in particular, he was interested in medical and computer schools and they all required essays. As a matter of fact, the SAT scores, which used to be sort of the benchmark for who was going to get into college and who wasn't going to get into college, are no longer looked at as, you know, the end all and the be all. And these essays have become much more important. And they're starting to ask all sorts of creative questions on the essays, you know, and it, and they're not looking for standard answers, they're looking for the creative answers, the original answers, the original thinkers, the kid or the student rather who has a unique perspective on life or a unique perspective on the particular subject area that he wants to go into. And the colleges are looking at these essays as as much more important. Now, it's not quite a portfolio, because, but the rest of the portfolio is attached in the student's resume, but it's no longer the numbers. And so that the numbers become less and less and less important in the colleges, and this other side, the personality, the ability to think outside the box, the ability to be creative, the ability to, to, to approach a problem and find a solution. I can't tell you how many essays we wrote. I think it was applying to 22 colleges, and each one required two or three essays, and it was just a nightmare. But that's what they were looking for. Not the numbers, because all these kids applying have these SAT scores up around, you know, 15, 16, 16, I guess is the top again still, you know, all these, these SAT scores are up around 1600. So how can you, how can you separate the kids just by, by test scores? Right. No, no, not numbers. Other things are what they're looking for now
2: and it's all cookie cutter, you know, like when you're just looking at test scores, you're looking at the same kind of student. And so, Mm -hmm. I mean, this is going back even, even when my first one, before my first one applied to college. And I'd always said to the kids from middle school up, you are going to pick some stuff in school. You're going to stay after school. You're going to take a late bus home because you need outside interest. You are not just going to go to school, come home and play video games, go do something, be social, be a part of something, show leadership. I have the older ones in Eagle Scout and he did um, wrestling in, in middle school. And then he did some other stuff in high school and he got really involved in in the arts in high school and doing some set design stuff. So have this wealth of, of things that you can tell experience and leadership from that you can speak to. Prior to that, you know, I was reading... Applications for scholarships for uh, West Windsor Plainsboro High School, and it's just cookie cutter, cookie cutter, cookie cutter. It's I'm in five AP classes. I have this score. I have that score. Mm-hmm. And and you're looking at like, what do you bring to this world? What do you do with your time? Okay, you play the violin. Great. Let's just put that in an academic box because I don't think you have a passion for violin. You're not applying to go to music school. So uh, you start to see through these things that kids are doing who, who don't have all those skills. And you start to see these trends in what they're doing. They started realizing, oh, the extracurriculars are important, so let me tap all those boxes. And then, then you start seeing this weird other dimension where they go to 12 different clubs in one year of high school. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm looking for depth of interest here. I want to see one thing you did for all four years, and I want to see you grow in that. And colleges are doing that they're trying to find those kinds of kids, not the ones checking boxes, not the ones with high scores. We don't want robots. We want thinkers. We want people who are going to contribute to a college, contribute to an environment and and to life. So, you know, I think all of that was happening before affirmative action got taken away. And I think it's just spurred on even more and more.
0: I, I noticed with my kids, you know, when I was in school, we had eight periods a day, so Monday through Friday, didn't matter the day, Yeah, you knew exactly what your schedule was, every day you're having math, English, and all that. Now they have days A through F, or something like yeah. that, and, <laughs> and one day, it's not even like every and every other day thing, it's like two days in a row they have math, and then it's a double period, and then the next day it's gym, which is double period, it's just, There's so much confusion. I think to kind of go back to where you said that there's a balance of trying to get the right information to the kid and get them the right curriculum. Is there, in your experience, an easier way to ensure that the kids are, their needs are getting met?
2: Scheduling. Scheduling should be about what's best for kids. Unfortunately, scheduling becomes about what's best for adults. And that is rooted financially also. It's not just, you know, let's make our lives easier. But this block scheduling is what causes these weird gaps and days off and whatever. Um, um, I hate block scheduling. And um, our middle school went to block scheduling. And we fought hard for our sixth graders to not be on block scheduling. And the difference is incredible, you know, because kids went from, in ours, it, it was an every other day situation where you could have a math class on Thursday and then not see your math teachers again until Tuesday the next week, depending on if you had a day off in there with this every other day thing. And classes are 88 minutes long for 11 year olds. It was tragic. It was absolutely tragic. So now we've gone to our everyday instruction again and we're ahead, like a lot ahead of where we were the past couple of years with the block schedule and the children's understanding that our our test scores are well over. And when I say test scores, I'm talking our, Classroom tests that we give, our assessments, our score averages are well above 80. 80% is mastery for me and, and generally, you know, well-held in education. 80% shows mastery of content. And, you know, when we see that with daily instruction, you can see, well, there there's a reason that we should be doing it this way. As kids progress, you know, college doesn't have your class every day. They they do more of this block schedule idea, which is where high schools can do a block schedule idea. I think that it is more appropriate the older a child gets. Fitting everything in is always hard. And, and A while back, we were talking about that financial literacy class. When that dropped in, my youngest was in high school. And the way the school approached it was every kid has to have a study block, one hour study period. And so they said you could put that financial literacy class half of a year in that study hall block. And so they weren't taking away from any any other class to get that in there. And that was kind of a creative way of doing it. I, I do like that West Windsor has that preserved study hall period. Kids need that. They need time to access teachers to work together. Or they need that time, you know, if they're involved in sports and other extracurriculars. So I, I love that they had that period, but splitting it. And, and it's just once in the four years of high school for half of a year that you have to take this time out for a financial literacy class. But I thought that that was a really good way to handle something that didn't have a place in the rest of the curriculum. I don't know how to meet all those needs. Nobody, <laughs> I think, has like the perfect plan of meeting all those needs. Uh, there are other schools that run on half-year schedules, sort of semesters like college. So you you take certain courses from September until the end of December, Jan- I think January, and then from February until June, there's another half of year for you, com- semester type. I think that those can also be successful. But again, I, I, I'm looking at students my lens, students who struggle. If you had math in the first semester of freshman year, but don't take it again till the last semester of sophomore year, that gap could be insurmountable. And so I could see a lot of holes in that semester approach for high school as well. So again, no no easy solution to right. scheduling for sure.
0: I know East Windsor based off of my kids, you know, there are certain core classes, the science not even really science, but the math and English are full-year classes. They All four years, full year. And then they get different. They can actually have, like, two different science courses within the year because they're dealt in semesters. But I, I see what you, your point about that the block station, when getting becoming a thing for high school students, it makes sense. Like you said, it's, it, it kind of gets them a little more geared and Acclimated to how college is going to be to a degree in an ideal world. How would you structure a curriculum? Viv?
2: For high school? Yeah. Can't answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm a K teacher. Right. I, I've taught kindergarten and eighth grade. I am not a high school teacher, high school teachers, you know, they, they major in their content area. And then they add an educational degree on top of that. That is a level of understanding I don't have right now. I, I only have my kids to go by, you know, um, one of them went to Notre Dame. They did the semester scheduling. Uh, the other one went through the West Windsor Plainsboro School System and did block scheduling. So I, I do like the drop rotate. I really do. I think that that gives an opportunity for a student to take many courses, see it at least four times a week, and then, you know, it drops and moves through the schedule the way that the high school did it at West Windsor is there were four morning and four afternoon. So you drop one from the morning, drop one from the afternoon, and, and each class then, could have enough time during the day to get through the content. I thought that worked well for him. I'm not sure how that works for other courses. You know, he took, he took some AP courses, but I'm not sure how that works for many AP courses or for, for kids on that higher track level. Again, I'm not a high school teacher.
0: How about going Again, backwards a little bit to... My friend over there? <laughs> how about before I get to Jean's uh, answer on that? How about how would you uh, structure an ideal curriculum for the students that you, the grades that you teach or familiar with?
2: I, I would love to give student choice, you know, and not let the computer decide where kids go. And staying within the curriculum, staying within what the state says we have to teach, you know, every kid has to have their math, their English language arts and their science and their social studies. I would love for them to be able to pick their... Specials or encore, it depends what every school has a different name for it, but your art, your music, your whatever. I, I wish that they could choose and that the choices that they had were driven by their interests and not necessarily by staffing, which is crazy to say, but we can fix that right we can we can find people who can teach things we can even take people from the community who could teach something and and fill a gap on things like that i'd love to see our digital print shop back up again we we need people who can do that i'd love to see our auto shop come back but there's no way it is you know all the the stoves were turned off in in the middle school they they don't work anymore and and more than ever the population of kids that we have in front of us need those types of skills, they need to know how to do those things. And I would love to bring all of it back. I, I'd love for them even to just be able to pick, oh, I want to do like a book study for this period of time and and um, and get together with other kids who want to do that. So I, I would just love to see more student choice and more soft skills rather than academic.
0: How about you, Jean, what would your ideal curriculum look like for the high schoolers?
1: That's a good question. I haven't thought too much about it. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of caught up in the in the current block scheduling that they have at the uh, I think all the all the uh, magnet schools have it now, which is uh, block scheduling so that students take one set of classes. On Monday, a different set of classes. On Tuesday, then go back to the. They have the. They have a Monday and a Wednesday set of classes, and a Tuesday and a Thursday set of classes, and then on Friday they take all of their classes for uh, half the periods. It seems to work very, very well for the kinds of kids that we have. Now, when I was in the Votech originally, there would be a the the shop periods would actually be. I think they were three hours for the students in shop. And they had their academic classes in the morning, for instance, and they might take three hours of shop in the afternoon, which worked really well for them, too. So I think it really depends on the students and what the adaptability is. I mean, New Jersey requires certain standards. The kids have to take certain courses. Now, in the Edison campus, once the kids fulfill those courses, then they're allowed to go and take college classes at the Middlesex County College because the the school is on the campus of Middlesex County College. And they have a great deal of freedom because they can take any courses that they want to. We had a student one year who graduated. By the time he graduated from the Edison Academy, he was able to matriculate into a college as a junior because he met so many requirements of the courses that he had taken during his high school years. So the flexibility depends upon meeting the state standards and then being able to give the kids the freedom because they have the time. They've got it. You know, the block scheduling allows them a little bit more time in order to both complete the coursework that they need for their courses and also to expand and, and, and work outside of the, of the classroom. So it's, it's hard to say it, it. A lot depends on the kids. You know, I I. I I really, really, I mean, the, the three-hour shop or whatever it was, I think it was three hours, was fantastic for those kids, you know? But that might not work in another school, depending on the school, because you've got to fit in all these requirements that the kids have to take. Right.
0: I think that's one of the reasons why I like the way Mercer County's vocational school works is that having the home school where that's like, strictly focused on academics and the vocational school is strictly focused on that particular vocation i mean i took advantage much,
1: how much time do the kids lose when they when they transport from the the their academic high schools to the vocational school and i mean you know there's is there time loss there what's what's the time schedule and you know how does that work out because we did have shared time kids at one time at east brunswick but i don't know if they're anymore doing i
0: believe it or not. it's one of the few things that has not really changed <laughs> Uh, since I was in school. And the junior year for most of the the trades, it's a two-year program. There are a number now that are uh, four years, but it was typically the junior year. You would go in to Votech first thing in the morning. You'd come back around 10, 30, 11. So you're getting a good two and a half, three hour block of shop time, so to speak. And then your senior year, it flips to where you're getting your, you're at the, your home school for the morning for the few hours, and then you're going to the, the trade school in the afternoon, which a lot of the kids, by the time they're in their second year, they've got a good grasp of, of what their trade is and what it encompasses. And we were given the opportunity to go out and actually work for a living, so to speak, mm-hmm. as, as a student. We'd have to go back, I think it was Mondays, just to kind of check in. And half the time, it was literally there for five minutes, and we left and went to our you know, to our jobs. That would be
1: so we the, here, the CIE programs, right? Yeah. Right, where you actually went out and, and, and worked on the job, yes.
0: Right. I, I think that that's one of the things that I, I loved about it. It gives the kids enough time to still come back to their old school to engage in, whether it's athletics or whatever clubs that they were part of. They didn't miss that because they were getting out around the same time getting back to the high school before those programs started. I kind of liked it. I, I would love to see more. I know that the... Mercer kind County of years ago, and I wish they had it when I was in high school, but they had a short-lived emergency services curriculum where the kids went for the Rotech. They got their firefighter one. They got their EMT. They got dispatching. They got hazmat, mm. a bunch of the more specialized training. So by the time that they got out of high school, they could go right into a, a paid firefighting job because, you know, God forbid you go into just strictly EMS, which is a, a soft spot of mine. <laughs> um, but uh, it was something that I thought was very needed. And I guess the interest just wasn't there and, and it got canceled and now it's non-existent.
1: Well, you know, when, when you say that, it, it strikes me there's one thing that, I, that I've always thought about is the fact that all these school districts in New Jersey, and I honestly don't know how many of them there are. There you know, several hundred, I guess. And I, I don't know. I don't know if you have the counts or not on that. There is little cooperation between these school districts. Everybody's got their own little budgets, their own little attitudes about how their school system should operate. South Brunswick never communicates with East Brunswick about what's going on. East Brunswick doesn't communicate with Monroe Township. And there's such a duplication of services that goes on, which is one thing that's nice about the VOTEX, because the VOTEX, or the magnet schools, pardon me, the magnet schools, you know, sort of, have all the services there but you know why couldn't there be a cooperative thing so if you have for instance if mercer county did want to offer the emt program why couldn't kids from south brunswick be able to go to mercer county to take those courses to 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 the mercer mercer school mercer high school or whichever school it was and take those courses if if uh South Brunswick offers a fantastic mathematics program. Why couldn't kids from one of the other schools go to South Brunswick? But we're all in these little isolated districts instead of trying to create a big unified educational system that cooperates with each other. So you don't have the duplication of services. Yeah, so the Votet, excuse me again, the magnet schools, the magnet schools have an auto shop, you know. Perhaps some of Vivian's students would be able to go to the VOTech to take a couple of of courses once in a while, but still retain their own school personality. South Brunswick wouldn't have to have an auto mechanic shop because that's a duplication of services. Uh, Woodshop, duplication of services. The services are available in different schools. If we could just somehow find a way to stop being so independent, so idealistically, I'm one school system, you're another school system, we never get along. We could change, we could, you know, we could revolutionize education in this country and we could actually, you know, teach the kids the things that they wanted to learn and the things that they needed to learn by sharing services rather than isolating ourselves from each other. Okay. I don't know, revolutionary, I go again.
0: Viv <laughs> definitely looks like well, she wanted to, to chime in that.
1: Well, I just <laughs> think we're
2: funded so differently here than, than other states. New, New Jersey, you know, we could say the EMS too, kind of go their own way, um, have their own way of doing things. And I know that there's other states where it's county-based, county funding. And so my sister lives in, in one of those states. And it's not necessarily any better in terms of the services because they're spread out over such a wide distance that it's not feasible to get to it. Um, so we we're saying like a Mercer County versus a Middlesex County. Like New Jersey's small and our counties are smaller. But over there, they're so big that you couldn't use another county's services. And the funding also covers so many varied socioeconomic levels. And so there's different interests based on that as well. And if you just kind of take a look at either Middlesex or Mercer, you would see very disparate economic status. And so then it comes into, again, school boards and and the interested parties in school boards being concerned about where the monies are being spent. So it's, it gets very complex. It's not as, as cut and dry as I, you know, spend some time thinking about things like this and have absolutely no solutions, no good answers for you. But I do understand... It would it, in a perfect world. I love Jean's idea. Like you've got it. Let's go use that. And and it's it's kind of like mutual aid, right, yeah. Mike? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Looking at it that way, and it, and it starts to kind of make sense. But in actually panning it out and talking about, well, then we have to bus kids to there. I'm in a district that's an S2 district. We're about to lose massive funding. We're about to lose courtesy busing. So now, how are we getting kids yeah. there? And we're definitely not bringing programs. back. Right.
0: That's one of the, the service things that I think that. There's always this talk of the most efficient way to spend the money, the best way to make sure that programs are funded without raising taxes. I know Viv and I spoke a a few years back about the idea of consolidation amongst school districts. And as you brought up, Gene, you know, there's, what, 566 municipalities in New Jersey. Most of them have their own independent school district. But you have some that emerged like heights on East ones are, you know, there are some instances where that's the thing, but going to a more County level, do you, do you think a County level could work a little better in a more densely packed state, like New Jersey, Viv, as opposed to one that's a little more uh, rural to where your sister lives?
2: I would be worried again about the allocation of funding. The loudest voices generally belong to the people with the deepest pockets and they want the money back in their district and the districts that need the money would end up be having less funding than they do now. I would have a lot of concerns about doing it that way.
0: I just I'm I'm just trying to find the way to get that, that happy medium of giving the, the students the choice to, to kinda of follow their passions to a degree while getting the base education that is required. But at the same time understanding that, like you said, squeaky wheel gets the gets the oil and, and that's kind of unfortunate leave the way that things are kind of treated all over the place.
2: But Mike, we used to do it. We're not asking for something new. We're asking for something we had.
0: Can you clarify that?
2: Those programs were there before they were funded before they existed. The teachers who taught them were there. They're gone.
0: Yeah.
2: I think in, in, in place of them, we have put what we've deemed, we, uh, the Royal, we have deemed, um, a better fit for the 21st century child, but it, it, it was short sighted. And now that I can't get a plumber to come to my house, um, <laughs> it was short sighted. <laughs> we need to bring them back.
0: Yeah. That was the one thing that, that always frustrated and baffled me is every kid when I was in high school was pushed. You got to go to college. You got to go to college. got to go to college. It's now we're, we're kind of dealing with the effects of not having kids go to trades. It's that unintended consequences that people fail to look out, seek out. I'm sure out, they meant
2: well. I'm sure everybody meant well. You, want, you wanted the best, right? You wanted everybody to succeed at the highest level. But it's kind of like when, when you mess around with Mother Nature and try to remove a species and then some other species collapses. It's it's very tangled web. And yeah,
1: that's what we've got going on. I I think I think speaking with a certain amount of pride of the Middlesex County Magnus schools, I think the Magnus schools are trying very hard to do that. I think they're trying to offer all things to all people. I don't know how it's going to work, but I, I believe there's still a plumbing. <laughs> I believe there's still a plumbing shop in one of the schools, probably Perth Amboy. I'm not sure which school has the plumbing shop. But, um yeah, it's it's. You know, it's a concept that I really firmly believe in because it's a comprehensive education. The kids are getting their academics, all the academics that are required by the state in the same school and then going on and getting a trade. Now, the, one of the drawbacks is, and I've always felt this is a drawback, is that usually the kid selects his, his or her trade in freshman year and then stays with it for four years. So if they suddenly decide that they've taken the auto mechanics course and they don't want to be auto mechanics, then they're a little bit limited in being able to change because you can only change. I think they allowed them to change shops uh, freshman and sophomore year, but after that, once you had chosen your major, you were you were sort of stuck with it, which is a problem. But at the same token, you know what you're talking about, where all these offerings are there. The the magnet schools have them. And it's it's a great concept. It may not be for every kid. It may not be for every circumstance, but it, it really does work well for those kids. So. But um, as you
2: said, Jean, you have 600 applicants for 44 chairs. I know
1: that's the problem. That's it. I know it's a problem. It needs to expand. Needs I know. More places need to be doing this. Well, they're, they're talking about building another high-tech high school somewhere. I think it's going to be on the campus of Middlesex County College also, so that's at least probably offer for another 44, but I don't know. Now, the other schools are, are much larger. I think the Scattaway has a population of around 1,000 kids, so they take a lot more kids. And the East Brunswick School used to be 1,000. I'm not sure what it is right now. Uh, Woodbridge is a bit smaller again, but, you know, it, it you can't offer it to everybody, but it at least it is there for, for a, a good number of the kids who want it.
0: We... Eclipse that at sixty minute mark, um, and and there's so many different avenues and, and questions that I have that we could keep on going for hours. But I guess we'll uh, sum it up with any closing thoughts on on your experiences and, and what you would like to see, how you'd like to see education unfold over the next few years.
2: I hope there's enough educators to teach all the kids.
1: Oh gosh. That is so true. I'm I'm on a I'm on a Facebook board of it's called I believe it's called Teacher Problems and what's going on around the the country is just really and that's around the world actually is pretty sad. There's so many teachers leaving the profession because there just is not enough respect for teachers, there's not enough money for teachers, there's not enough help for teachers, there's not enough support for teachers and people are leaving the profession and I don't know where they're going to come from because if you know you can make A couple hundred thousand dollars a year out in the business world why would you want to become a teacher you know it takes a certain dedication and a certain sense of self-sacrifice that a lot of people just don't have anymore so that's it is a concern
0: i've i've heard of of shortages all over the place and it it doesn't help kind of going back to the the narrative of, of politicians sticking their their nonsense into things and You have to have people that are willing to engage and deal with things, but you have to give them the tools to teach and and, and the resources they need. And it seems to be a trend over the last, I don't know how many years, but all the people that I know that are teachers, which I'm fortunate to know many, it, it seems that every year it gets harder and harder for them to have the resources that they need to do their job efficiently. And like you just said, Viv, you know, the concern is, are there going to be teach people that are willing to be teachers anymore? It kind of falls back onto you know, law enforcement with a lot of this stuff and the different narratives going around with law enforcement. At some point, you're not going to have people that want to even do that job, and that's not a pleasant-looking society, in my opinion.
1: You can say that again.
0: Yeah. Any closing thoughts from either of you before we uh, end it? <laughs>
2: Well, you had some some good questions and, you know, appreciate the opportunity to think through it with you. Uh, Of course, this was all just tip of the iceberg. Um, And like you said, there's just, there's just so much to get through. and, And I guess the big thing is people need to get involved, you know, even if it just means going to a local school board meeting and listening and find out what's going on in your town, people need to get involved. And the more people are involved, the better chance we have of, of meeting all of these big obstacles and, and doing what's right for the kids. Cause ultimately it's, it's about what's right for the kids. Right.
1: Good closing. I like that. It's always what's right for the kids and that makes all the difference in the world. And thank you for allowing us to express our opinions about <laughs> some of these topics. Cause they're pretty hot button topics for some of us. So.
0: <laughs> yeah. That, that's kind of one of the reasons, I mean, the, the whole reason why I started this podcast is just to kind of add context to things and, over the last handful of years, just the incessant absurdity of of things that people insist. I mean, I literally had a friend, a mutual friend of Viv and I, call me um, a few months back, and literally was ranting about the fact that they were going to start putting litter boxes in the schools in Hamilton.
1: Oh, I, I and I, I literally
0: turned on. I'm like, I know you're smarter than that, and I know you know that that's all bullshit. Well, that's not what I was told, and that's not what this person she was told directly from the school. But I'm like, that I can guarantee you, she's lying through her teeth. That that's not a thing, and and just the the different, completely absurd notions that are being perpetuated by people. It's just, it, it's frustrating that things that are so clearly false are being pushed out as truth, and I, I without getting. Too much into the political aspect of things, I I do fault our current more vocal politicians who just on a daily basis espouse the most inane shit that is completely fe- in fact completely false, and just repeat the same bullshit over and over and over again, regardless of how many times they're called out for it and and disproven they just keep pushing it. And I think that just emboldens the people that have less of a ability to think critically and are kind of stuck in those echo chambers of cognitive bias that just has become accessible. But on that note, <laughs> thank you guys very much for, for coming on and, and chatting with me. And, and I definitely want to do this again and hopefully maybe get a couple more people and some different perspectives on things and, Go from there.
1: Hey, thank you so very much for having us.
0: Thank you again. Thanks, Thanks for listening to another episode of Adding Context. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at addingcontext.com. You can also support our show via Patreon and send us feedback and show ideas to podcast at addingcontext.com.